This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Health Report and our RN Summer season of highlights. And of course, Happy New Year to you. This week, we listen again to some of our series about substance abuse and how we can help people access help. A little while ago, while I was looking at the latest evidence on alcohol and other drug use, I discovered that a huge amount of research had passed me by, including topics I know interest you, like how can parents prevent drug use in their children. Professor Marie Thiessen and her colleagues at the Matilda Centre at the University of Sydney are at the cutting edge of some of this work, including ICE, also known as crystal meth or methamphetamine, one of the most misunderstood drugs of abuse. And that's what we're going to cover in this, the first of an occasional series, which will also eventually have its own podcast in longer form. Jack Nagel knows firsthand how difficult it is to quit methamphetamine. Jack's life was hugely affected by ICE, and he now, courageously, is prepared to talk about it. For a bit of background context, I come from a really middle-class, everyday Australian family, was really good at sport, but always had a bit of an inkling to want to go out and party and things like that as I was growing up. And because I was playing sport so much, any opportunity that I got, I really went out and ended up doing a number on myself. And it was in those circles that I eventually got introduced to methamphetamine as I was using other drugs and alcohol. And... As soon as I had it, I just fell in love, really. I, I loved it. And compared to some of the other drugs I was using at first, I was able to get really high for a less amount of money. But that quickly turned on its head as I started using methamphetamine more because my tolerance started to build to it. And that's when things for me personally in all the other areas of my life really started to go a little bit haywire. And I suppose the snapshot of it for me is that it progressed really quickly. And then, unfortunately, I ended up with a lot of, I suppose, some of the stereotypical signs and symptoms of, yeah, chronic methamphetamine addiction where I was in psychosis all the time. Yeah, I ended up quite suicidal, having problems in all my relationships with family and friends and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, was just really, really broken towards the end of it. And yeah, found it really, really hard to reach out and and get the right help for a long period of time. Let's just double back then. In terms of your personal experience of drug use, when you said you did a number on yourself, what do you actually mean? For me, and I'm not sure if this is the same for everyone, I didn't know it at the time, but I really noticed in my personality a couple of things. If I do something, I tend to do it all the way. And I think for me, in hindsight, so I played sport very competitively growing up as a junior. So I was playing pretty much six days a week and training, you know, the other days as well. So I really feel like I missed out on maybe some of that normal teenage experience that maybe others would have. But I really wanted to, you know, go out and be that sort of normal teenager. So when I had that opportunity, you know, instead of maybe experimenting with a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of drugs as my other friends were doing, I really... You were all or nothing. That's right, all or nothing. I would really take my opportunity and dive headfirst in. I was always nervous to try new drugs, but as soon as I took them, I often found that I really loved it to start with. And and then that would obviously snowball into me, yeah, going all or nothing. So the initial experience was good and you could afford it, but just describe the spiral. So I loved it at first and it was really like a big lie because I just thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. But 
pretty quickly, actually, for me. It was never the using of the drug for me that was the problem. It was what came along with it. So the mental well, health. Well, that's always started, the case, isn't it? The, well, I think for most people it is, and, and definitely was for me. And the mental health aspect initially was the biggest thing for me. So with methamphetamine use, I always say what goes up must come down. So when I would use, I would go up incredibly high and and that's when I felt good. But it was actually when I was coming down and didn't have the drug where I'd experienced the most problems, become incredibly depressed. That's often where I would have some of the psychosis episodes. And by psychosis, Uh, what sort of delusions were you having? My psychosis were complete blackouts which was actually quite embarrassing because i would black out and i would be obviously so there'd be a period of time where you just couldn't remember what had happened correct correct and then the people around me and friends and things would just tell me all sorts of sort of strange things that i would do and say and strange ways that i would act and all those sorts of things which caused me a lot of embarrassment as well and it all just started to feed into each other and that's where the cycle of addiction really started happening for me because as all those different shameful experiences and moments and depressive feelings and anxiety and all that sort of stuff started to feed into one another I started to need an escape and so instead of it being something that I used for fun it was something that I used to escape my reality and my pain and things like that and but again, um, but it was well, a vicious cycle obviously Correct, correct. It was a vicious cycle. So the more I used, the more pain was created and then the more I would use and and so on. And And your relationships? You talked about damage to your relationships. Yeah. So as I said, at the time, I had a younger brother. So when I was 18, he was 10 and that was sort of the time period that I was in the thick of my addiction. And yeah, my behavior was just completely erratic and I was living with my mum at the time and she always said to me, I love you and I really want to help you, but yeah, I'm sorry, you just, you, you have to leave. You can't live here at the moment because, you know, I, I just can't deal with your behavior. And that was kind of something for me that was actually a bit of a blessing in disguise because it sort of made life for me a lot harder and some bad stuff happened in that time but I was couch surfing with friends and off and on my dad was letting me stay at his house but yeah all all my relationships just became completely broken because I was lying to people stealing off my family all those sorts of things I'd really just kind of become a shell of the person that I was before and and was just completely at that stage just living to use really what brought it to an end I'd had lots of what you would call rock bottom experiences and that never stopped me using. But in the end, I had a really um, massive bender where I'd at that stage been crossing all the moral boundaries that I had before. And so I'm six foot six, but I'm a big teddy bear. I don't have a violent bone in my body, but I was just desperate at that stage. And I'd actually stolen like several thousands of dollars off someone who was actually dealing drugs and I spent it all within a week on meth and had yeah a a massive blow up and was in psychosis for a lot of that time and just everything went really wrong and what happened was that I got dropped at a train station by the people that I was using with I was like cold and hungry and I went to buy a big M from the milk bar and I had like five dollars in my pocket i don't think i even had enough for the big m and i was just like in that moment i was broken and lucky enough for me my mom and the rest of my family in the background were you know searching for rehabs and things so when i went home she let me in and i had this really cliche strange moment where she had this really big mirror in her bathroom and i 
kind of caught my reflection and almost my life flashed before my eyes. I sort of realized that I'd gone from the happy-go-lucky young guy that had opportunity at his feet and all that sort of stuff to just, yeah, your stereotypical sort of drug user and I just got really broken in that moment and I asked my mum for help and as I said really lucky that I had the supportive family in the background there and they'd already you know had been speaking to treatment centers and things like that and I was able to get an assessment and start that process very quickly. And how long before you were clean? This is the interesting part for me and something that I see all the time now with people in addiction was that I asked for that. I can't remember what day it was, but that was towards the nighttime. Mum called the place, but they could only book me in for an assessment. I think it was like two days after that. And I, even though I was completely broken and wanted help in that moment, I got up the next day and, you yeah, know, sort of said, something. I don't, yeah, I, I said, I don't want help anymore, you know, and, and wanted to go a different direction. Lucky enough, I was kind of talked into it. I went for the assessment and then that kind of would have just been terrible for my family because it wasn't you know, I had to wait, which is pretty quick actually in the drug and alcohol treatment space. I only had to wait a week and a half until I could get into the program. So I just had this whole week and a half where I had the yes, no's happening in my head. Do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? I was taking drugs, falling in and out of wanting help. But lucky enough, I just kind of made it there. And I actually had something really profound at the treatment center happen to me, which is I met someone else a little bit like myself that was in recovery from a similar addiction. And they were able to intimately describe to me how they were thinking and feeling. And I had sort of like a psychological shift in that moment that maybe I wasn't alone and that I could do it too. And that was really pivotal for me to be able to change. And I was able to become clean and off drugs from that time on. And have you relapsed at all? Have you gone back? No. So I've been incredibly lucky from what I understand now and with friends, relapse or you know use is a common thing that happens with addiction. It doesn't mean failure, but it's a common thing. But I've been lucky enough. Again, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have a supportive network and opportunities with family and stuff like that. I've been able to stop and turn things around. It hasn't all been luck. It's been lots of hard work. Um, but yeah, I, I have actually been able to stay in recovery and turn my life around, which has been amazing. And what does turning your life around look like? What's the future hold? Ah, complete shift. So I don't like to talk about like the stereotype because everyone's sort of different, but I was in a really low space um, and just couldn't really function in my life. And now that's completely turned on its head. You know, I have a career and I've been able to marry and having a child. And, you know, if you saw me in the street, you'd just think that I was an everyday member of the community and I'd had nothing go on in my life. The usual guy shackled to a mortgage and the whole catastrophe. (laughs) That's right. What I used to dream that I would never become, um, I've become a total squarehead. Um, Yeah, a lot to be said for it. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And yeah, to think that my life could have potentially (laughs) gone in a completely different direction is um, pretty amazing. And part of the reason why I like to talk about my story, because it just keeps me in touch with where things were at and how lucky and grateful I am where I am now. And do you use any drugs at all? I mean, do you alcohol, tobacco, anything else? No. So it's been an interesting journey. At the start, I decided not to use anything else out of fear, I would say. But now I actually believe that I could, you know, have a drink and not bust out in chronic alcohol use and handcuffs and all that sort of stuff. 
but I choose not to, you know, just because it had such a big impact in my life. I choose not to, but I have friends that, you know, were in equally as bad positions as me and went through the whole process and now choose to socially drink and, and have a different relationship with substances and, and things like that. One of the things I hear in this situation is that it's a cohort thing. So you go through with friends who have the same or you acquire friends who have the same drug habits. And if they remain your friends, you still stay within that sort of ambit. Have you had to drop friends and create a new social world for yourself? A hundred percent. It's been a really strange and interesting process. It's the thing I've learned about addiction is that it's not actually so much about the drugs. It's probably 5% about the drugs and 95% about everything else. And social circles and friends and environments is one of those things. And in the early days, I had to think about myself like I was in intensive care from a really serious medical issue. And, and I really isolated myself away from any alcohol or drugs, whether that be people or environments and going out and things like that, because I just recognized in those early stages that I really needed to take care of myself. But as I've progressed, I've been able to create new friendships. I've had old friends that have changed their life as well. And then we've created new relationships and new friendships. But I definitely had to move away from what my life was previously and change. And not because those people were bad, but I think it's a big thing when it comes to addiction. And I recognize it for myself. You know, I really like that saying, you're the average of the five people you hang around most. And, you know, that old saying, if you hang around in the barber's chair too long, you're probably going to get a haircut. Hmm. Um, and that often tends to be the case when it comes to addiction and drug use. If people are wanting to change and head in a different direction, they have to sort of change their environment and their life in lots of different ways to make that happen. And that was the case for me. Jack Nagel, who's brave enough to tell us his story about ice. Professor Marie Thiessen is director of the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. Ice is a particular interest of theirs. Take us through the menu of the amphetamines and why crystal meth is called crystal meth. Crystal meth is the strongest form of methamphetamine and it is the most addictive form of methamphetamine. So there's a menu through base, there's a menu through to powder, and then the strongest form is crystal methamphetamine. And it comes in clear crystal? Yes, in clear crystals. And that's where the name comes from, the clear crystals. And you inject or inhale it? You inject or inhale it, yes. And crystal methamphetamine has really been increasing in prevalence amongst Australian methamphetamine users over the last 10, 15 years. So 10, 15 years ago, it was much more common that people were using meth and base and powder. But now we have a lot more people using the crystal form. But it's still not that common, is it? Look, it might surprise you to know that dependence on methamphetamine, Australia has the highest rates of dependence on methamphetamine in the world. Really? Yes. I always thought we were overblowing it. Look, it doesn't mean that every second house in suburban Sydney has a meth problem, but it does mean we do have a significant issue. This is a hidden problem, Norman. So the rates in the population from our household surveys are about one in 75 people are reporting that in the last year they used meth. That's a lot. That's quite a lot, yes. And it's more in the country as well. Yeah, country is... The other source of information is wastewater, looking at how much methamphetamine is in wastewater, and that is indicating to us that in the country there's higher rates. Now, sorry, can I just add in there that 
there is higher rates of meth in the country, but there's two things that could be driving that. It could be that there's more people using or the people in the country are using more. It's just the quantity thing. So we don't know. So while crystal meth has captured the market from other methamphetamines, has it captured the market from other drugs? It was some period of time ago that Australia ran through a heroin drought in sort of early 2000, 2001. And that was the time that we really changed in terms of the landscape of what drugs were being used. So we did shift from heroin over to greater use of crystal methamphetamine at that time, and it's continued. And grown, obviously. And grown. And the number of people using in the last 12 months is still one in 75, and that's been staying pretty stable. The challenge, as you've picked up, are the number of people who are using crystal methamphetamine, and that's gone to nearly, you know, regular users, it's nearly half. And is it more addictive than the other forms of methamphetamine? Yep, it's definitely more addictive. Why? Crystal methamphetamine and methamphetamine generally is highly addictive. It's an amazing drug at increasing the levels of the pleasure neurotransmitters in our brain. So we increase neuroadrenaline, we increase dopamine, but it then tricks our brain in feeling that we need to have that. And then your brain is asking for these neurotransmitters and these pleasure drugs and you're primed. The only way to get them is to use methamphetamine. So... What's the problem? I mean, obviously addiction's a bad thing. It can change your life, although not always. I mean, there are some people who can live with addiction to some extent. This has got the reputation of being a bad drug. Mm -hmm. Is it a bad drug? Yeah. Once you find yourself in the position of being dependent on methamphetamine, it is absolutely a bad drug. And it is a bad drug because it impacts you at every level of your life. And it impacts your family. In what way? How to just describe but, it? Yeah, the impact, particularly that people talk about with methamphetamine, the incredible desire and craving, the desperation to use that drug in order to have those pleasure um, neurotransmitters hitting in your brain. And then, unfortunately, the impact of methamphetamine is often psychosis. It's often so aggression. delusional behaviour. You're hearing things, yep. seeing things, seeing things, hearing things that are not there. So it is Paranoid intense. psychosis? Paranoid psychosis. Which is a risky form of psychosis because yes. you think the world's against you and you can get quite aggressive. Yes, yes. Very risky and very difficult, as you can imagine, for family members who are trying to care for people. And is there co-use with other drugs? There is considerable co-use with other drugs. There's considerable co-use with alcohol. There's considerable co-use with cannabis. But methamphetamine is so intense that it overrides that. Now, a cardiologist told me that when he's on call at weekends in a major city teaching hospital, he's seeing young people with heart attacks and heart disease secondary to amphetamines and cocaine. Yes, and that is also the physiological responses and the impact on the body. So 100% correct that you increase, you know, death rates from crystal methamphetamine and from methamphetamine are increasing. The other area where they're increasing is suicide. About 18% of people who die from methamphetamine dependence is through suicide. And is that because it induces a mental health issue or you had a mental health issue before you started taking it? That is the perfect question, Norman Swan, and it is a very big challenge. It's going to be both. 
We do know that a lot of people come to crystal methamphetamine and methamphetamine use with a long history of risk factors like trauma, like depression, like anxiety disorders. And then you have a drug that you take that then can increase psychosis and other mental health problems. Now, ice is used in the gay community. Gay men use it a lot, from what I can gather. But they say to me, gay men say to me, well, but it's recreational. We're in control. Is that true? Yeah, so we've been talking about the really hard end down at the methamphetamine dependence end. So while I said, you know, one in 75 Australians will say they've used it, then about half of them will only use it occasionally and they actually will be okay. So clearly the safest way not to get into trouble with methamphetamine is not to have it at all. But, you know, it is also absolutely true that people do use it in a very sporadic way and don't get into trouble with it. And what predicts you getting into trouble? As I said, those risk factors around underlying mental health issues, underlying trauma, and it will be genetics as well. Your problem is you're playing Russian roulette. You don't know which combination, and we don't. And is there a, a cultural effect that if you're in a group of people who are using hard, you use hard, whereas if you're, say, part of a gay community where they're just using it occasionally recreational, that you'll drift into that style of use? The context within which drugs are used is really important. And if you've got a supportive environment where people say to you, you're starting to have a few problems there, you should be reducing your use, you know, all of that supportive environment can keep the use under control. People often say, they have in their mind that use heroin once, you're an addict forever. Is there any truth to that? And is there any truth to you smoke or inject crystal meth once and that's you gone? It is a really strongly held belief in the community and the data just doesn't back it up. So so you've got to work at it. You've got to work at it and it is well, What still, I mean by that is you've got to work at it to get addicted. You've got to work at it to get addicted and also, you know, it is the case that people demonstrate that they can use it, you know, occasionally and not develop a dependence. But you're playing with fire. Now, there's a lot of stigma attached to this. There is huge stigma attached to this, huge. Both self-stigma, so people who use methamphetamine are really hard on themselves, and the community is incredibly nervous and there's huge levels of discrimination against people who use methamphetamine. So it makes it hard to come forward and admit you've got a problem? It absolutely makes it incredibly difficult. And one of the things that we've been working on is, like, how can we break that stigma down? And... In the past, we've done it by saying, we'll give just lots of information. If we give lots of information and tell people that treatment works, then they'll come and we'll break down that stigma. That's not working. What is working is bringing in people who've had lived experience of methamphetamine, working with the community to design information that reaches them and then tackles that stigma. So your peer group. Your peer group. So like Jack's story. Jack is incredibly powerful. And Jack has been working with us on ways to engage with people who have lived experience of methamphetamine and they can bring to light all of the wonderful information. Now, as always, I'm hopelessly out of date. So I had been under the assumption, which was, I think, true five, six, seven years ago, which was nobody really had a convincing treatment for methamphetamine addiction. Yeah. Whereas... 
heroin, you could go on to methadone replacement or yep. suboxone. Yes. Alcohol, there are medications and there's ways to get off alcohol. But yes. for methamphetamine, there wasn't. I understand that I'm wrong about that. Well, Norman, you're wrong and right. Okay. Oh, what a relief. Well, a I, relief? No, I, no, I'd like that to be a treatment, so I'm not, I don't want to be right. I want yeah. to be wrong. You, I know you want to be wrong. We do have phenomenal treatments, talking therapies, cognitive behaviour therapy, motivational enhancement with great evidence. The problem is, as I described, this drug is really hard. And so we lose people. They come in, they start treatment, but we lose them because the cravings are so intense. Some and there's no work. replacement therapy to there's actually no... remove the cravings. Mm. So you talked about heroin and opiate replacement, and that has been incredible, a game changer in heroin dependence because people can come into treatment and they stick at it. Absolute game changer. We don't have that yet in methamphetamine. So we've been trialling stimulants, but unfortunately the results really haven't been as positive as we'd hoped. There are two Australian trials, one in long-acting stimulants. So this is like the treatment you would give to a child with ADHD? Like ADHD treatment, Ritalin. yeah. Ritalin. Which is a milder amphetamine. Yep, yep. So dexmethamphetamine. And it's really trialling stimulants to try and as a replacement. Now, there's also another drug on the scene called N-acetylcysteine. And we also have an Australian trial looking at whether that will have an impact as well. Because they're trying that in alcohol, aren't they, as well? Yes, there's a couple of trials in alcohol. So somebody's listening to us, as inevitably there will be, and they've got a problem or they know somebody with a problem. What should they do? Definitely reach out. Definitely reach out. And that is the real tragedy of methamphetamine dependence in this country. It is not treated like every other health problem, and it should be. So unfortunately, people will reach out and they will find the stigma. We have a lot of resources available for people to help them navigate their way through the health system. So hop online and look at our online portal, Cracks in the Ice. That's a good way to start to get the right language in order to work your way through the health system. But in the end, it's still going to be go and see your GP. And services in the country? Because I mean, you're, you're likely to find, eventually find somewhere in the big cities, but mm. if you're living in a regional centre, still mm. short. Mm. Still short, Norman. And I know it is not as good as seeing someone face-to-face, but we do have some fantastic digital resources and they're available also on Matilda Centre's website. You know, it's not as good, but it's a great option. Now, the statistic with heroin addiction is that about 5% of people will give up of their own volition per annum, even without methadone. They'll just decide they're going to do it. Tobacco is similar. People will just quit of their own volition. Does this happen with methamphetamine addiction? Do we know? Yeah. We have some very long-term studies showing that over a longer period of time, 10 years, that there are people who, you know, of their own volition, as you say, will be able to reduce their methamphetamine use or stop their methamphetamine use. They are incredible individuals. It's the exception, not the rule. It's the exception, not the rule. Thank you. Thank you very much, Norman. Professor Marie Thiessen is Director of the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. Next week, there's more discussion about research into substance abuse, including alcohol and anxiety, the teenage brain, and what parents can do to ensure kids don't get drawn into taking drugs.
I think the most important thing is for parents to know that they still have an influence over their children's choices when they become adolescents. So just before you go on there, Mm. I had thought that the evidence was that you're a strong influence in the preschool years, pretty strong in the early primary years, but as they get into upper primary, the peer group tends to dominate. So that's, yet again, I'm wrong. Well, I held that view as well for a very long time, Norman, it's only recently that we've found that that actually isn't the case. So whilst it may appear and it may seem at the time that peers are the most important influence in your life, parents still have a critical role to play in their adolescents' health behaviours and choices. I mean, is this just saying we're going to set a limit here, you're not going to do this, that and the other? What is the behaviour of a parent that makes a difference. Okay, so there's a number of things parents can do that we know can help reduce the uptake of substances from their teenagers. First is to model good behaviour. If your kids are coming home from school and you're there having a glass of wine every night or a beer, that's not a good look. Don't get drunk in front of your kids and have a good relationship with alcohol. And more of how parents can model good behaviour next week. This has been The Health Report. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.